The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and this week I'll be discussing xenofeminism with Patricia Reed. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Poll Theory Other. Ours is a world in vertigo. It is a world that swarms with technological mediation, interlacing our daily lives with abstraction, virtuality and complexity. Xenofeminism constructs the feminism adapted to these realities, a feminism of unprecedented cunning, scale and vision, a future in which the realisation of gender justice and feminist emancipation contribute to a universalist politics assembled from the needs of every human, cutting across race, ability, economic standing and geographical position. These are the opening words of the Manifesto of Xenofeminism, subtitled A Politics for Alienation first published in 2015 by the Laboria Cubonics Collective. I spoke to one of the members of the group, Patricia Reed, about the manifesto. Patricia is an artist, writer and designer based in Berlin. Her work is concerned with models of cohabitation adapted to our planetary scale condition. I began by asking Patricia to expound on the key themes of the manifesto, the appropriation and repurposing of technology to feminist revolutionary ends, gender abolitionism, and the manifesto's advocacy of a rigorously anti-naturalist politics. So the three, yeah, the three key points of the manifesto. I mean, the, the questions that you sort of like kindly sent me in advance. I mean, I think you've you've uh, nailed down, uh, you know, many of them being the uh, as you as you had you know already mentioned the the appropriation and repurposing of technology. Um, the concept of gender abolitionism and, uh, you know, more rigorously, more in general, this sort of um, commitment to an anti-naturalist politics. Um, and within, you know, like the substrands of that would be a feminism that is, uh, you know, advocating for practices of reason, uh, which maybe we can talk about a little bit later and how that differs from the way that that term has been um, sort of monopolized by uh, enlightenment legacies um, and um, and then perhaps uh, you know and another I think key point that is you know regarding this anti-naturalist uh, position is really the sort of emphasis on the need to sift through between norms and facts and I think those sort of meta concepts really help um, address you know many other specific issues um, that we try to get at in the manifesto and then subsequently in the work that we've all just been sort of carrying out on our own you know after having published the the manifesto perhaps we should take them in turn then so if we start with this question of reappropriating technology and putting them to sort of feminist revolutionary ends mm -hmm. what does that look like and what's the kind of thinking behind that 
Well, yeah, I mean, that's obviously the, you know, the kind of uh, really large question looming over us. I think a lot of the, a lot of, you know, this is already, we wrote that text about three years ago, and uh, there seemed to be a tendency um, towards, a, you know, a, a kind of techno-pessimism that was there, or either, you know, you'd even had like a techno-fetishism or techno-pessimism, and there didn't seem to be so much space in between. So ours is actually, you know, despite the bombastic language of, of that particular text that we wrote, I think it's actually quite a, a reasoned proposal in the sense to say that there, you know, technology obviously offers us certain affordances. Um, it is trapped and contained within a certain economic structure that is uh, limiting its potential use. Um, but that doesn't mean that we have to, you know, uh, demonize technology as such. So what would it mean to start sifting through some of the things that we have at our immediate disposal and, and imagine different, uh, let's say, contextualizations of that, i.e., what would these technologies look like in different economic structures, different um, conceptual frameworks, um, uh, and so on and so forth. So that's, that's sort of the main um, position with regards to that. It's of course extremely, uh, you know, it's it's extremely difficult to get precise on this one. I know uh, my colleague Helen Hester has often looked towards, uh, you know, historical examples of of um, you know uh, sort of autonomous technologies. She had talked uh, very often about the Dalem um, menstrual extraction device, which was a sort of uh, developed by feminist groups um, either to speed up the the, <laughs> the menstrual process or for DIY um, abortions when those were not available in a, in a medical institutionalized sense. Um, so it was really about how women would take you know uh, autonomous control over their bodies and so on um, in order to. Yeah, in order to maximize certain freedoms that were not afforded in an institutional format, and of course the the uh, the the the, uh, the sort of the, the the limit of this is of course not to just advocate for um, these completely DIY approaches. They're kind of stop gaps until a larger um, project kicks in, which is ultimately the end goal. I suppose one concern that would be raised in terms of these sort of DIY technologies would mm -hmm. be that this would possibly sort of encourage people to engage in unsafe practices. And how do you sort of navigate that terrain? Absolutely. No, I think that was also a major um, debate within the group as well, right? Um, because you have this phenomenon as well with um, within the trans community where uh, you know, in in you know, you know, in the recent past and in the in the present, in certain locations, certain hormonal treatments are just simply not available in a let's say regulated manner. So the only access to these um, you know biomedical technologies is through black market internet um, marketplaces, essentially, um, which of course, as you you know correctly you know, point out is, is it potentially a huge risk? You know, this is like, we're talking about self-medication and so on and so forth. Um, yet, uh, it's, it's, you know, in part the fact that these communities were, were engaging in these activities because there was no institutional, um, support that they then could leverage that position 
via the institutions in order to sort of help usher in the fact that these technologies can, these medical technologies could become available in a, let's say, more regulated uh, manner, um, distributed by professionals who know the risks and so on and so forth. So um, again, that's that's just one. So these, these can be seen as like really sort of um, bridges in a way towards getting something much more um, regulated. If we could maybe move on to the question of, of gender abolitionism. Yeah. I suppose in some ways I'm a little surprised that that term has been retained in that it seems with the manifesto you're not arguing for for getting rid of gender, but it's mm-hmm. more sort of a pr- proliferation of, of genders. Is, is that right? And, and could you say something about this this concept? Sure. I think like I think the important thing with the gender abolitionism, as you rightly point out, it's not that we're advocating uh, the the abolishment of gender as such. What what is becoming what is advocated for is the abolishment of oppressions, typically as, uh, associated with typical uh, you know like normalized markers of of gender. So it's quite a you know in the end of the day, it's it's a quite a simple demand. It's um, that you know essentially no one should be oppressed or held at a disadvantaged position because of certain traits normally associated with gender. And of course, that extends to uh, race and class as well. So um, that is that is mainly the point of this uh, of this argument. Yeah, I mean, maybe if we, if we come on to the anti-naturalist aspect of the, of the manifesto, could you explain what that means to you? What does it mean to have a, an anti-naturalist uh, gender politics? Well, I think, I mean, I think it even extends beyond gender politics specifically in the sense mm. that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think this, the general tenet of an anti-naturalist position would be to, of course, it's not against nature, um, but it's about knowing how to separate between norms and facts. So um, what can, what, you know, what can be variant and what is an invariant Um and basically to look at how, you know, and of course we have this expression called naturalization, which is basically when certain norms become so overperformed, so concretized, um, that they appear to us as natural. So um, when in fact they are simply norms, which are subject, subject to mutation and change and so on. Um, so that's, I think, the main the main um, concept that drives an anti-naturalist thing is to co- is to look at certain issues um, that are, as I said, go beyond just questions of gender. Um, that um, you know allow us to to sift through what has become uh, just sort of internalized as a sort of quasi fact of nature, when in fact it is just an artificial norm that can be. Um, that can be influenced otherwise. So, you know, in you know, if you think about in um, in in this very basic basic sense, the you know a, an economic structure such as capitalism is premised on a naturalized uh, image of the human as inherently self-interested and uh, and only incentivized by by selfishness essentially. Um, and without that core naturalized image of the human as such the rest of the program basically doesn't function. So uh, that's essentially what, you know, that, that would be one example where you'd say, well, we need to separate the, the norm from the fact, and we cannot definitively say the human is as such 
in the in the way that is being is being uh, portrayed in in order to make the system run. The manifesto describes the human condition as of, of one as sort of being already alienated in a sense. So there's mm-hmm. there's no sort of notion of a kind of authenticity that we then lose within capitalism or patriarchy and, and so on. And it talks, you know, about working with and through alienation. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if you could just expand on, on what that means for you. Sure. Um the, the, the question of alienation, the reason, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a small provocation that we decided to subtitle the Manifesto of Politics for Alienation. Um, you know, one of the reasons is that also that term in itself has sort of been monopolized in the negative uh, from, a, from a humanist perspective, right? And obviously linked to, to conditions of labor. And certainly, you know, um, you know, speaking in, in a more modest way in the context of an interview and not, a, as I said, a bombastic manifesto, no one's arguing for people to, uh, you know, f- for this kind of individual feeling of alienation that is, that is horrible and, and, and distancing and so on and so forth. But it is to say that alienation can also have this productive side of it as well, which is basically like how one can revise concepts that one, one has, one has to in a sense, alienate oneself from a, from a current position um, in order to be able to revise certain conceptual parameters of how one, you know, models the world in a sense. So I think that's that productive side, which could be more described as sort of epistemic alienation, um, is actually incredibly important. And, uh, you know, as the as a sort of the proliferation of... of um, of, of say like social echo chambers and so on and so forth um, where you're basically just getting this constant stream of familiarity or confirmation bias all the time I think that term even takes on a more heightened role than it did say even a couple of years ago when this phenomena wasn't as you know acutely palpable as it is in, as it is in our current moment um, so I really see this productive side of alienation uh, as, as a kind of way to escape the the trap of confirmation bias, essentially. One of the um, potentially tricky areas with a, an anti-naturalist position is, is with regards to the fact that many LGBTQI people view their sexuality and gender position as being ordained by nature and, mm-hmm. and have used this sort of self-understanding to defend themselves from, from people oppressing them. Mm-hmm. What would you have to say about that? Well, I just, I mean, I think the one of the important things to do would be to look at, you know, historical precedent here and the way that nature has equally been used to, if not more so, to continue that line of oppression. You know, it wasn't even that long ago where something like homosexuality was, uh, you know, listed in as a psychiatric condition, basically. Um, so, you know, there's a, if if one pursues that line of argument, then one also has to take on the the sort of other side, which is where the vector of nature or the or the the let's say the yeah where the vector of nature has been equally used to in the opposite way to to create lines of oppression. Um, whereas I think the what is what is so um, you know in, incredible about the uh, about something like yeah, uh, how can I phrase this here? What is so incredible about the trans movement um, 
is the way that um, bodies are materially proven, you know, or materially escape these grids of gender that have been, you know, again, a norm and not a fact, but a norm imposed on, at least in the global north. It hasn't been, you know, that's not a, this gender binary is obviously not, it's not a universal binary, right? It's, 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 it's also culturally specific. So I think that's a really, that's an incredibly, you know, powerful example, even for people who, you know, don't necessarily identify with, um, you know, as trans and so on and so forth. It's an incredibly powerful example um, to, to really materially demonstrate that, that conflation of norm and fact, you know, in the fact that they escape it. In some respects, the, the manifesto seems to be reacting against certain strands of ecofeminism. Does that seem accurate to you? What sort of were the aspects of, of contemporary feminism that you felt that you were trying to improve upon or change or, or subvert? Well, I think, I mean, one of the, I think one of the issues that we're, that, that we share, that we share equally is um, how to contend with this issue of scale that is sort of a, uh, you know, a, a really paramount concern for, you know, to, to face up to certain crises that, 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 um, that are facing the planet at the moment. Um, and I guess our concern with a lot of eco-feminist movements was that they were remaining, um, uh, you know, too concentrated on a site um, without necessarily looking at the way those sites are connected into a global, a, a global structure. Um, so it was to say, uh, you know, that basically um, we're, we need to find strategies and techniques to, to um, confront the scale of, of problems that we face, which are even, you know, uh, transcend the borders of a nation state, for example, let alone a site, but to look at how these issues um, connect to larger, you know, larger networks of power, but then also potentially how these issues can connect into larger networks of solidarity making, for, for instance. Um, so I think that would be one of the, of the sort of primary concerns uh, that we had when we were writing the text was to, was to say, like, we need to be, um, you know, is to kind of also assert some sort of larger scale ambition into into a feminist politics, and we were concerned at the at that time that these issues of scale weren't being, let's say, adequately mitigated. Regarding scale, so would you say it's in some ways a reaction against the kind of the localism of a lot of the politics of the the nineties and and the early two thousands? I mean, not just regarding uh, feminism per se, but just the, the left in general. Um, well, certainly that was a concern. I think you know, if uh, I think one of you know, I think there needs to be some also some diplomacy done as well, because I think that there has been uh, quite a, you know, I think a lot of the, I think there's been sort of a, a negative brush painted on a lot of movements uh, that were deemed as like too local or so on and so forth. Whereas actually, I think we need to get into a mode of, of activist generosity with one another as well, which means mm. that we can certainly phrase and raise these critiques, but do so in a in a spirit of comradeship. Because essentially, 
um, if we want to really seriously em em embark on a project of large-scale change, this is going to require massive uh, networks of solidarity making, uh, which, you know, first of all means that there's not going to be any sort of hyper, you know, pure vision attainable as soon as you get that, that sort of, um, that, that scale involved. But it is to say um, that I think one can productively and generously critique certain things without diminishing the important energies that a lot of these groups have, have certainly put into to community building and what have you. I think this is incredibly important and something not to brush aside, but rather actually amplify. Um, and so I'm, I'm a bit, you know, a bit... Uh, I mean, I understand that for rhetorical flourish, sometimes one needs to, you know, say things in quite a dramatic tone. Um, however, I think that there needs to be a lot of um, bridge building between movements, and that should actually be a huge area of focus, is how can we bring these different movements together? Um, because people are exhibiting incredible amounts of energy into these projects. Um, so commitments are definitely there. Um, it's a matter of how do we patchwork them together rather than, you know, getting into a, a kind of self-defeating mode where we criticize each other to death or just get plain all out nasty with one another so that there's no collaboration possible. Um, that doesn't strike me as really... Um, that, that 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 sort of approach is not going to be very helpful for any for any project. <laughs> Would it be sort of certain strands of accelerationism that you think have perhaps been too harsh in this regard? Because obviously, I mean, it seemed to me reading the manifesto that it does draw on accelerationism to some degree. Is that is that correct? Yes. No. It definitely does. And you know, I think. Um, and, and definitely sympathetic to the critiques of, of a, of a hyper-localized um, politics, you know, like a hyper-localized political ambition, let's say. Um, I think, you know, I think my disagreement comes more in the tone with which uh, that was, you know, put out in the world as, I think, a legitimate, you know, point of, uh, of critique. However, there's a way one can do it in order to induce some self-reflexivity within, within the groups you're addressing to kind of maybe say, yeah, okay, we need to figure this out a little bit rather than putting it in a tone that um, is, is more dismissive, let's say. Um, because like I said, I think it's, it's uh, um, important to acknowledge the, the energies that, that you know, countless people have been putting into movements um, it's important that there's a rigorous critique of what's going on, but I think critique and dismissiveness are very different different entities. Um, and so on that one that you know one particular aspect uh, of of the tone with which you know the so-called folk politics was was uh, let's say diagnosed, I think it maybe did a, a more disservice to the ambitions of like trying to build larger scale coalitions then, um, then uh, you know, it, it just, I think it turned, turned certain groups off, uh, which may have been more sympathetic to the critique had it been delivered in a more generous spirit, let's say. The manifesto, as well as engaging with, with eco-politics, also engages with postmodern identity politics. Is the 
what's seen as problematic for you and the other authors regarding identity politics is it this notion of identity as this sort of fixed thing that uh, in some sense must be must be defended almost yeah i think i think one of the the main i think one of the main issues that we saw was like you know obviously identity is kind of it it feels like there's um it's almost if you ma- imagine it as a kind of map it's a kind of setting of an enclosure and you know my colleague luca fraser had uh, a really nice expression um you know, a couple of years ago, so like identities are leaky as hell. <laughs> and so, um, you know, how do you, you know, on the one hand, I mean, there's been a massive critique recently about identity politics. Um, and again, I think a lot of these things tend to swing so far in, in, in um, the pendulum swings a bit too far. There's a reason why, and very important historical reasons why, this brand of uh, this branch of study and activism came to the fore, you know, and that that, that is hugely important. Um, the issue is when, as you said, when these things get locked down, um, they become, you know, like a bit too, and and when they get locked down and too focused on issues of sort of like purity or like I said before, this sort of um, insistence of, of familiarity or this doubling down on familiarity. That's when I question, you know, how do these identities interact? You know, it's one thing to make a claim on, on, on an identity, and that's a, obviously a hugely important thing, but I think it's equally important to understand how these identities are set in relation to one another, which is the leaky side of the equation. And so I think those, those, uh, that, that leakiness needs to be you know, properly addressed, because I think that's where we're going to be able to, you know, find ways to to weave together different communities to, to find commonness in certain ambitions and so on. I suppose in contrast to identity politics, xenofeminism seems quite unapologetic in drawing on enlightenment concepts, you know, a very sort of positive view of, of rationalism, of universalism, and, you know, a, a more positive view of technology than was associated with the left you know, during the 90s and 2000s, even if it's not tech utopianism. Do you think it's understandable to be wary of a sort of universalist politics? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, <laughs> there's there's a reason why this was uh, so so heavily criticized. And of course, uh, you know, the the... the 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 material legacy of something like the enlightenment is 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 horrific it's 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 the spread of global capitalism colonialism and so on um so there's nothing to you know the, these the the legacy of 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 that enlightenment is a is a you know is a hugely important uh reason why reason itself needs to be requalified in a different in a you know through a different means and a different lens um, I think, you know, the, again, talking about this, you know, hyper swinging pendulum, of course, in, in a lot of those, you know, completely justified and, and, and incredibly important criticisms of the enlightenment and, and, and modernity as such, um, you then start to see this kind of, uh, celebration of, of irrationality. I mean, my background is in the arts, so you start to see really the celebration of irrationality as a vector of freedom. Um, you start to see, you know, when, when something like the social studies of science 
gets portrayed in this, again, caricaturized view, which is basically that, you know, um, which, which sort of like moves away from, from questions of epistemology and, and transforms science into a sociological enterprise. Again, I'm speaking about the caricaturization of a lot of these fields, not the fields as such. So I think that's a really important, important, you know, thing to, to restate. Um, that's right. I just I lost my train of thought. So the <laughs> the, the uh, to to speak about yeah the the worries of the of the universal. Well, I think you know I mean again we've we've made this claim many times is that you know of course the the spread of Enlightenment values and the sets of Eurocentric dominations that that coupled it um, are you know are are not truly universal. Uh, in the first place, um, they they be, they went global in terms of a spatial practice, but in fact, it's just an inflated, particular perspective, Eurocentric perspective that gets thrust onto the the scope of the globe. So, can you even really constitute that as universal? I would say no. Um, so, I think a distinction needs to be made between the the rhetoric of universe, universalism that was deployed under that guise versus um, how you want to define it, you know. So although we have something like what you Kui would call a unilateral globalization at the moment, um, should we be not ambitioning towards a global globalization rather than saying that scalar question is, is, is de facto uh, evil, we have to shy away from it as such. Um, I think it's more of a question of how do you? How could we imagine this uh, form of universalism, which is maximally, um, you know, which is which isn't dominated from a particular perspective? Let's say so. What we've been calling before, like a, a sort of principle of a bottom-up type of universal. Um, and I realize that I'm speaking in in total abstractions at the moment, um, but. Uh, <laughs> It's obviously a, it's a speculative proposition, but I think it's also going to be something that you know again to address the the scale of the crises that are that are facing us, and um, acutely so in in different ways across the globe. Um, we're going to have to figure out a way to maximize you know solidarities in order to find political um, political uh, modes of addressing addressing them. I, I can sort of imagine um, somebody might reject the idea of a sort of universalist xenofeminism on the idea that it's a sort of implicated with capitalism and sort of Northern Euro uh, European American culture and so on. What do you think xenofeminism has to offer the global South? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, first of all, I don't think... Uh, I wouldn't say that xeno. It's not our ambition that xenofeminism is is the the universal. Let's just make that mm. clear. It's advocating for an approach to universalism. I think that's vastly different um, because it is, as you said, it's not just an. It, it cannot just be another project launched by a bunch of women uh, in the global north um, that will, you know, in quotes, emancipate. Of course not. That's, that's um, ridiculous. And that's just a repetition of a, of a, of, of a, what we call a bloated particularity. Um, mm. 
but it, it is, it, it's more, I think this is what is, you know, becomes, if, if we look at somebody like, um, you know, I've been recently kind of revisiting some of the feminist epistemologies from, let's say, 30 years ago or something. And of course, this term situated knowledge is, is, is hugely important. So, you know, one of the ambitions of feminist epistemology historically has also been to like, um, redefine what counts as knowledge, right? So obviously the certain institutions of science have been, you know, inc- dominated by the, by, by white, white males, um, feminist epistemologies want to, you know, point out the way that that stronghold on it has actually limited, limited our epistemic approaches. So um, rather than demonizing science as such, their critique is that, hey, you're, you're actually putting huge limitations on, on epistemology itself, on what we can know about the world, on scientific practices by maintaining this institutional sort of stronghold on it. So I think that's a really important reminder that, you know, something like situated knowledge is not, um, you know, it, it wasn't meant in this sense of, of this kind of hyper relativization, but it was meant to, to um, expand the sort of contours of what we mean by something like objective knowing um, without rejecting, you know, that, that ideal as such. Um, and so I think that this, you know, these different practices, um, because there are, you know, of course, an array of practices of knowing the world that don't necessarily have to um, abide by the, by the, you know, Eurocentric um, model of knowing that, um, that there's, a, you know, a huge amount of potential for the expansion of knowledge by you know rigorously adopting these different principles of how we adjudicate what knowledge is, what what counts, what doesn't count, and so on. On on a different topic, could could you say something about the the creation of the Laboria Cubonics Collective and um, what you think is valuable about that kind of collective writing, and and also whether the decision to write collectively you see as as part of the project in and of itself. Sure. I mean, um, we we met um, around in, around three and a half years ago, I guess, twenty fourteen, at a conference in or at a workshop in Berlin, and most of us didn't know each other at the time, um, but we kind of, you know, and you know, well, maybe I should sort of backtrack and say I think the word collective is maybe the the wrong word for us because um, we are we have different positions, in fact in many ways. So I always like to think of it as a working group mm. um, because obviously like bouncing ideas and approaches back and forth is, 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 is probably a more accurate way to position our thing is not like a unif- unified message, let's say. And actually we don't end up working together that often. We came together to write the, the manifesto, um, which kind of responds in a, in a slightly like it's a, in a way it's very general so now that we you know know each other better and are working in our particular fields um some of the you know like i said the particular differences that emerge after we come through the common general diagnosis start to differ a little bit and that that's been quite interesting um to to, to like to navigate essentially um 
but uh, you know, in terms of the collective writing, I mean, like I said, we've only written one thing together. Um, I doubt there will be any other collective writing again, not out of any drama, just simply uh, time and dispersion of people um, makes it a little bit tricky. Um, but that process kind of worked in a, in a, you know, both in a horizontal fashion where everyone was preparing fragments and snippets, and then it ended up in a more vertical, uh, you know, a vertically written sort of way in the sense that there needed to be just a couple of hands on the text to actually shape it into a coherent whole um, rather than six separate voices. So that's a little bit of the process there. Um, what's been extremely valuable, what's, what's also extremely humbling about all of it is, uh, you know, and is probably absolutely <laughs> evident with the, some of the very lackluster answers I've given you tonight, is um, the fact that, you know, it, it touches on such a broad territory um, that, you know, no one, no one of us can address the scope um, in a rigorous way. Uh, each, you know, like we can each address certain aspects of it in a more robust fashion. Um, but that's been an incredible learning curve, um, you know, getting to know the research practices um, and, and artistic practices, frankly, of of some of the others and how they are, you know, like which parts of the text that they are, you know, sort of most attached to and how they're working through it. Um, but, you know, as I said, it's been a quite uh, a steep learning curve to try to get somewhat oriented in different people's fields um, in order to be able to even modestly sort of grasp some basic concepts of what of what they're uh, what they're advocating and what they're working through what's the reaction been to the manifesto have there been aspects of people's engagement with it that have surprised you things that people have picked up on that you maybe didn't see as particularly significant or areas that were criticized that you didn't imagine would be um well i think yeah i mean it's been it's been uh, quite varied um and uh I can't say that there's so many, there's been um, so many surprises. I mean, I'm surprised in the first place that it, that it seems to have been read by quite a few people. That was very surprising because for us, it was a very, you know, it was a very playful exercise. It was, it was like arduous getting six people to come to some sort of consensus, but it was nonetheless in a kind of playful spirit and you just release it online and see what happens and 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 then um so it was quite humbling that it seemed to at least resonate with with quite a few people um but in terms of uh, surprising reactions like i mean i guess the the main surprise was that it did seem to resonate with with quite a few different communities and communities that um you know, we, we wouldn't, we, we didn't anticipate, um, you know, like, uh, I think one of the first people who reached out to us was like talking about Peruvian feminism and how this was so, this resonated so uh, much with, with their struggles and so on. And that was, you know, I guess something like that is surprising because you do embark on these things with the knowledge that you're speaking from a very, you know, I'm sitting here in Berlin, my colleagues are in, in Europe or in, in, in Canada, you know, or in Australia. So we're speaking from a very specific Anglo-dominated context. And, and, uh, and so to, 
to get the feedback that it had had some resonance outside of that community was was perhaps a bit surprising. Um, and I think, you know, for the most part, of course, there's been uh, some, you know, more, more uh, extreme um, sort of, you know, uh, disagreement with, with the text um, that wasn't always, uh, you know, put in a, in a friendly way, but that's, that's fine. I think um, in, in general, I've been so incredibly grateful to read through, um, you know, certain criticisms, uh, certain augmentations um, around the text that, that, again, have just been, have just kind of reinforced my, my uh, sort of position that, you know, these questions are, are incredibly difficult. They're incredibly complex. So um, they really need as many minds working on them together and uh, always, you know, with the, with the possibility of, of revising positions and so on. Um, so I think that's been, uh, you know, revising or, or providing more nuance uh, to, certain, to certain positions. So that's been, you know, a really, um, that's been incredibly, uh, you know, people have been extremely generous with us. And so uh, I think, you know, speaking, <laughs> I think I can speak for the others when I say that we, we can, we're only extremely grateful for the, for the, you know, rigorous engagement that so many people have, have shown and uh, that we, you know, now get to benefit from in a larger community of thinkers uh, in the sense that we can take on those critiques, um, work through them or, you know, simply accept them and say, okay, yeah, we need to rethink this here. Um, so that's been, it's, it's, it, that's, that's been a sort of the main takeaway, I guess, is to really feel implicated in a larger community of thinkers. Um, and that, you know, the, the words you say, the, the things you publish, you know, matter. Uh, and that sounds like an obvious thing to say, but um, when you're a writer, you know, you don't always get feedback from audiences. You publish things, they go into the ether, and, that, and that's kind of it. So that's been incredibly, um, incredibly rewarding to see that level of, of generosity from these, these other community of thinkers. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. Do check out the Xeno Feminist Manifesto. You can find it at laboriacubonics.net. If you like the pod, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Next week, I'll be joined by David Broder to discuss the Italian elections and Italy's political impasse. Thanks for listening.